Truth, how do we discover it? How do we understand it? And how do we apply it? These foundational questions of life can be answered in the pages of God's Word, the Bible. Through the systematic study of Scripture, we seek to equip women with a growing understanding of truth, which only comes by knowing the God of all truth. This is the Theology Matters Podcast. Welcome to the Theology Matters Podcast. I am Laura Corumbus, and I'm sitting here again with my friends and fellow sisters in Christ, Wendy Blackwell, Marty Crabtree, and Bethany Drum. And we are here today to talk about church history, and we're excited to dive into that. But before we do, we've got a little, a little fun question to ask, which is... If you could transport yourself into any era, what time period would you want to live in? I'm going to say Bethany first because she was excited to answer <laughs> this question. Oh, um, well, as the fiction reader in the group, I actually, in addition to like fantasy and other kinds of fiction, I do like to read historical fiction. And I read a lot of World War II historical fiction. I am like, Dave always says I was my father's son. So uh, he had two daughters and I was his son. So I love World War II. And it's just such a fascinating period in history. Um, so I think I would choose that period. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I would. I mean, other than being alive when Jesus was alive and hearing. Yeah, no Sunday him, school answers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually think. That I would like to have been alive in the late 1800s. My great grandmother was born in uh, 1875 or something like that, and I knew her when I was little. And she would tell me stories about growing up in Boston, and just fascinating stories. And so now, as an adult, and obviously she's been dead for many years, I would love to go back and see the kind of world she lived in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Okay, you're to me. And believe it or not, I didn't research this. Y'all can all relax. There was enough on church history to research that I didn't spend time. But when I was a kid and people would ask this question, it was all about the clothes. I wanted to go to an era where it was, you know, the fancy dresses and the big skirts and all that. But now in my mature maturity, um, I my answer is that I would like to go to the 16th century, but with a 21st century understanding. Can I add that little... <laughs> caveat there. You have to explain more. (laughs) Because that's the Reformation. And I just think it would be fascinating to sit and listen to some of those debates and and watch just some of that unfold in real time. And um, But again, I would want to bring my understanding now to that, to those discussions. But I think that would be really cool. So that was actually my second choice. Like first popped in World War II. And then I'm like, oh, but wouldn't it have been cool to see Luther nail the pieces on the door. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I almost said World War II because I was thinking like big band. Of course, I'm thinking about the music, but mine didn't go with music, which was kind of astonishing. But I was actually thinking, I think because with my kids and I'm at home with everybody, I was thinking about like the pioneer westward expansion, like Little House on the Prairie (laughs) kind of time because, I don't know, everybody was to get, together and working hard to support the family and provide. And they, there was no social media. That's what I was thinking. Anytime before social media would really be fine. But I don't know. That was mine. But everyone 
has hard too. So it's hard to decide, but there you go. That gives us a little historical fun thing to think about before we dive into church history. And church history is something that in our course, we we talked about church history in individual classes, but we didn't have one class session on church history. And so it was actually Marty's idea to uh, do a podcast episode on it, which I think is a great idea because as we look at some of the heresies that were facing today, uh, it's helpful to look back in church history and see how these things have been debated and settled in in the past and in the early church. And so we're going to talk about that today. So Wendy, I think, is going to expand on on that just a little bit more. I'm just going to give a little to the why, and, and really this is um, two things Martin Lloyd-Jones said as to why we should study church history. And he said, first, it does, as you just said, help us guard against error. And then he also said it helps um, encourage us in our in our ongoing study. But um, he made a couple of statements that said, most of the theological discussions that people have today, as well as most heresies that exist today, were already discussed, debated, and settled within the first 500 years of Christian history. So he goes on to say that many of modern heresies are simply the rebranding and recycling of older ideas that the church has already resolved. Um, so from a church perspective, I think those, but then when you bring it down to an individual perspective, I love what he says as far as church history. And he said, I would say that church history is one of the most essential studies for the believer, were it merely to show him that this terrible danger of slipping into heresy or into error without realizing that anything has even happened to him. And we do need to be on guard. I think that's just going to get more and more and more important. Um as we continue to progress. When I think about uh, church history uh, and and the course that we've been teaching about Theology Matters, I appreciate church history because it concerns the development of systematic theology, which did not exist after the uh, New Testament canon was finished. All of the material for the Bible was there, but there was no systematic way of thinking about it or communicating it. And so that is something that's developed in church history. And when I think about church history, I'm going to say that I also think about gardening, which is something I very much enjoy. And if you've ever done any gardening, uh, you know that there are several things that you have to do to get the blooms or the bounty. You have to water and you have to wait for the, the plants to produce. But then there's all, always the important task of weeding. And weeding is essential to growing. And if I ignore the task of weeding in, in my garden, the weeds will just take over. Um, the, uh, there would be no blooms, no fruit, because the weeds rob the soil. And if you let the weeds go long enough, they will outpace whatever it is that, that I've planted. And pretty soon you cannot distinguish the weeds from the planting. So what does this have to do with the history of the church? Well, the history of Christ's bride, the church, begins with Jesus himself, who chose his disciples, the men who would obey him and make disciples and preach the gospel using the words that they had heard from the mouth of Jesus. After Jesus ascended into heaven, Peter and John and the rest went out to spread the good news and the truth of God's word that they had learned from Jesus. They planted seeds, and the church grew and grew as they worked and as they waited. 
The disciples made disciples, and when the original 11 died, mostly by martyrdom, other men took their place to spread the gospel. But like the weeds that spring up in my garden, false teaching began to make its way into the church. You read almost every letter in the New Testament, and you read the disciples' concern, the, the writer's concern, about false teaching, whether it's Paul's warning in Galatians regarding the Judaizers who were saying that the Gentiles had to submit to the Mosaic law in order to be Christians, or Peter in uh, denouncing in Second Peter the heresy that some were teaching, denying the lordship of Christ. And when we read the book of Revelation, we read the Apostle John's record of seeing and hearing the risen Christ who condemned the heresies of various churches. That, that uh, book was written only 50 or 60 years after Jesus' death. And so there were already all of these heresies at work in the church. So the history of the church is the history of those who planted seeds of truth, uh, and watered them, waiting for the fruit of salvation, and the many, many godly men who weeded out the false teachings and heresies that threatened the purity of the church. And as various heresies and divisions sprang up in the New Testament church, the church fathers then would gather in councils to search the scriptures, including the gospels, the letters, and the epistles of the New Testament. And through their discussions, they would discern truth from error regarding any particular heresy or false teaching that was threatening the church. And they would publish their conclusions through creeds and confessions, such as the ones that we're going to discuss today, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, or as some say, Chalcedon, and the Westminster Confession. Okay, so that's where, thank you for that intro. And I love that um, analogy that you used of gardening. That's really helpful because, I mean, I'm not really a gardener, but I know about weeds because I do have a lot of weeds and they do take over. So that was helpful. So we're going to talk through, I mean, obviously church history is there's a lot, so we can't cover it all, but we have chosen kind of three areas that we'll go through. So Wendy is going to kick us off with Nicaea, right? The Council of Nicaea. That's right. And there's no question on how that one gets pronounced. I know. So. It's unfair. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so the Council of Nicaea was what was considered the first universal church council. You can see in the book of Acts that there were councils previous, and there were local councils that happened prior to Nicaea. But this one that brought together about 250 to 300 bishops from as far away as Britain was considered the first universal church council. And it was convened in AD 325. There was also a follow-on, and I'll just go ahead and say it because when I talk about the actual creed, we often think of the creed that came out of the council in Constantinople that was a carry-on, really to clarify where the Holy Spirit was brought into the creed. But that one took place in 381. But the original took place in 325 in Nicaea. And these councils, as Marty said, came together to confront heresy that had creeped into the church and to really try and address it and make what was a creedal statement, a, a statement that essentially said, I believe, and what they um, proposed in the creed. And it was very important that what was proposed was biblical. Councils were not, were not authoritative if what they decreed or proposed was unbiblical. And so there was constant checking that up against the truth of Scripture. And um, and so when we go back to the creeds, we are really looking at church councils that were bringing the truth of Scripture to bear. 
So Nicaea was convened to address the heretical teaching of a man named Arius, and he went toe-to-toe with a man named Athanasius, and Athanasius was determined to fight for the heresy that Arius was bringing into the church, and what Arius was saying was that Christ was made and not begotten. And so what he was denying was what we have discussed um, in our classes called the doctrine of eternal generation, that Christ was the eternally begotten Son of the Father. And so... Athanasius was determined that he was not going to allow this. And the reason he was so determined was because he felt it undermined the gospel. When you go there, you undermine that truth. And, and Athanasius said he was fighting this fight for the sake of the gospel. And he, I love this comment, if the church got it wrong on the person of Christ, the church would be wrong on the work of Christ. And if the church is wrong on the work of Christ, then our salvation is not secure in Christ. And so Athanasius felt like it was a battle worth fighting. And that's what was hammered out at the Council of Nicaea. And through that council, All the bishops agreed that God is one substance in three persons, that the Son is eternally generated or eternally begotten, but He is no less God, and that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have a unified will and action. They never work apart from one another, nor with any hint of potential disagreement. And I think that just really sums it up well and would be what we would want to communicate even when we talk about the Trinity. And I know sometimes we introduce some challenges there as we're all wrestling with that, but I think that's said well out of this creed. And so just to kind of sum up, I'll just pull a couple of statements that came straight from the creed and what they say about the three persons of the one essence within the Trinity and the Nicene Creed, though longer, but here again, three excerpts, says, we believe in one God, the Father, all-governing, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, the very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And lastly, what was added in 381 in Constantinople was the part about the Holy Spirit, and they said, and in the Holy Spirit— meaning, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver, who proceeds from the Father, who is worshiped and glorified together with the Father and the Son, and who spoke through the prophets. So those, again, identify the three persons of the Trinity, and that's what was clarified in the Nicene Creed at the Council of Nicaea. Yeah, thank you. That's helpful. And I think, you know, as we're talking about the Trinity, uh, because we've had a lot of questions on the Trinity, I think, in our class. And so just a reminder or to let you know that we will talk about the Trinity more in depth in later episodes and a bonus episode and things like that. So if you heard a lot of words about the Trinity that you're thinking, I don't know what that means, we're going to get into more depth on those things. But yeah, the Council at Nicaea is really what kind of set those in stone, I would say. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I'm going to move us forward then in church history to the (laughs) Council of Chalcedon or Chalcedon. We don't know. We don't know how to say it. And I looked because, you know, we all, all four of us agree on everything except for how to pronounce (laughs) Chalcedon. So we're saying Chalcedon. No, I'm just kidding. That's that's my solution is just come up with a new way. But I did. I heard it said Chalcedon, Chalcedon, Chalcedon. I heard someone say it like that, so I don't know. Anyway, 
I'm saying Chalcedon because that's what I've always said. But the Council of Chalcedon, it came after Nicaea. And um, Nicaea had defined the Trinity, like we said. But then the early church was still debating the nature of Christ. And I would say also in our class, we've had a lot of questions come up about the nature of Christ in our. So it makes sense that they were having all of these um, confusing things come out as well. So in that time, uh, different theologians were emphasizing either the divine nature or the human nature of Christ more than the other, and then they were falling into heresy because of that. So the Council of Chalcedon really cemented the doctrine that Christ is one person with two natures, divine and human. And so in between Nicaea and Chalcedon, there were some other councils that were were working toward this end, and there were a lot of different heresies um, that came up. I I found a good R.C. Sproul quote as I was listening to him teach on this, and he said that some people have argued that in the whole history of the church, the terminal council of Christology is Chalcedon. The church has never been able to go beyond the limitations set on our understanding of the person of Christ from what was articulated at the Council of Chalcedon. And I agree with that, is what R.C. Sproul says. So it was pretty pivotal in understanding. So they were asking these questions like, if Jesus was fully divine, how was he human? And if Jesus was both human and divine, how did that humanity and divinity coexist? Which is... Good question. It's a great question. Good questions to ask. So the the summary of the different heresies that were coming up at that time is that it was like a pendulum swing. So they were either denying the full deity of the sun or they were denying the full humanity of the sun. And so um, those were kind of the issues. And there were several several people that came up with heresies that were addressed, but I'm going to get into two of them. Um, Nestorius was one, and he was the Archbishop of Constantinople in 428. And his heresy, um, he really was charged with saying that Mary was the bearer of Christ, rather than the bearer of God. And that was an issue because it overemphasized the humanity of Christ and took away his deity. And so he said that if there are two natures, then there have to be two persons, that there can't be one person with two natures. So he separated out the two natures of Christ. Um, and so he was actually excommunicated eventually. Um, and then the other one was, <laughs> this is another one that's hard to pronounce, but I'll go with RC on this. He says Eutyches. So Eutyches um, was a different spiritual leader. And he said that rather than Christ having two distinct natures, that he had one divinely human nature. So the two natures are kind of mixed together or confused so that you have less than God and more than man, and it's just very, very confusing. Um, and so one of his quotes that he said, uh, he felt like the humanity of Christ was absorbed into the deity of Christ. So he said, as a drop of honey which falls into the sea dissolves in it. So that's how he felt about 
the humanity of Christ, that it was like dissolved into the deity of Christ. So he had some things that were wrong. So in 451 is when the Council of Chalcedon happened, and there were 400 bishops that ga- that gathered in Chalcedon, and um, they pulled from Pope Leo the Great had issued the Tome of Leo, and that's what we now know as the Chalcedonian definition. So it affirmed that Christ was one person and two natures, human and divine, and the actual document is about five pages long, but the concluding paragraph is what we usually read. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, But unlike the Nicene Creed, it's not a creed that's supposed to be memorized and recited back. It's supposed to give clarification to the Nicene Creed. And again, R.C. Sproul said he likes to think of it as distinguishing the two natures without dividing them. So some of the Some of the heresies that arose were really dividing the two natures of Christ, and R.C. Sproul says that the Chalcedonian definition just distinguishes them, but they're not divided or separated. So the three main things that the Chalcedonian definition is known for is the phrase truly God and truly man, that Jesus is truly God and truly man. So he has two natures, fully divine, fully human. He's not like 50% God, 50% man, but he's truly God and truly man, complete in Godhead and complete in manhood is what the, the definition says. And then it also gives boundaries to Christology by bringing up these four negatives. So the four negatives are that the natures exist without mixture and without confusion, which points back to what Eutyches was saying. And then also without division and without separation, which points back to Nestorius and what he was teaching. And then the last one is that um, each nature retained its own attributes. So the line from the actual definition says, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved. So in the incarnation, God does not give up any of his attributes or his humanity. He's truly God and truly man. And so that is what the Chalcedonian definition gives us. I think it is so interesting that that almost all of these heresies involve the person of Christ and his nature. Why do you think that is? Did you did you think about it while you were? I did. Of- I mean, I think it's because partly because it's just hard for us to us to understand how can how can a person be truly God and truly man and have all mm. of humanity and not have to give something up? You know, it's that's confusing. It's hard to understand. Yeah, yeah. But it's central to the gospel it is. too. I mean, it's central to the gospel. But I I wish I had my Bible right in front of me. Yeah. Hang on, there is one. <laughs> I think it definitely goes back to Scripture in 1 John. 1 John 4, I believe, says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. And here's the test. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. 
it goes on. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. But I think 1 John 4 tells us that's where the attacks are going to come. Those spirits that need to be tested run against who they say Christ is. There you have it. That's what mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah. Well, I'm going to talk about the Westminster Confession, which is not really like the, the two that you all have talked about in that it is not specifically about a heresy uh, re related to Christ. But let me give a little bit of historical background before I talk about it. Um, so in the centuries following the time that you all discussed, uh, like up into the fifth century, in which the councils and bishops worked to maintain the unity of faith and fidelity to the scriptures, there was a change that came over Western Europe, where the church was. This change began in Rome in the Dark Ages and in the Middle Ages, as the administration and leadership of the church centered in the Roman Catholic Church and the office of the popes. By the 1200s to the 1400s, the Roman Catholic practice of indulgences and departure from the authority of Scripture and reliance on sacraments and edicts of the Pope meant that the work of Christ was absent from religious life. The prescription of the Catholic Church for the issue of sins, and not sin, but individual sins that were committed, and that's an important distinction, was their their way of dealing with sins was to store up merits that would hopefully outweigh one's demerits. People would acquire these merits through confession, penance, and the payment of indulgences to the priests, basically relying on the rituals of the Roman Catholic Church and not on the message of forgiveness and salvation from the scriptures. Most people were illiterate and couldn't read the Bible for themselves, and the priests and the popes were happy to keep it that way. So that's like more like a focus on not a, that we have a sinful nature, but a focus on behavior and not and not heart. Really. Exactly, exactly, and that's the distinction between sins and sin. And so they did not deal with sin because there was there was no indulgence for you know, having a sinful heart, but it was just for individual sins that they could, you know, rake in the cash, basically. Well, then in the, in the early 1500s, along comes a Catholic priest named Martin Luther. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Martin Luther was grappling with his own sin, and um, he would do all of the things that the Catholic Church required of him, but he could not find peace and the assurance of forgiveness in the rituals of the church. And then he continued reading Romans. And in the year 1518, the truth of Romans 3.24 burst in on him. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In 1533, just a few years later, while studying the scriptures, John Calvin said in his words, he suddenly saw and tasted in scripture the majesty of God. He said it was like a light dawned on him. This was the launch of the Reformation between these men, Cramner, Knox, and others, a time in which men and women became convinced that the Bible, and only the Bible, is the source of the truth and reveals grace and mercy to be found not through ritual or indulgences, but in Christ alone. The Reformers taught that salvation from start to finish and it is entirely and solely 
the work of God. The, the Reformation took hold throughout Europe and in Britain as well. England had a series of monarchs who were loyal to Rome and who at various times outlawed the Protestants as they uh, came to be known. And these kings forbade the translation of the scriptures from Latin to English. The Catholic Church used a Latin Bible and did not have English Bibles. So, But this didn't stop a fellow named William Tyndale who undertook to translate the Bible into the English language so that, as he said, the plowboy in the field may have a better knowledge of the Bible than the Pope. Thank God for William Tyndale. The religious convictions of England's monarchs flipped back and forth between the Catholics and the Protestants, but then it was during the reign of King Charles I that he called for an assembly to revise a document that was known as the 39 Articles, which described the practices of the Church of England, which was mostly like an Episcopalian uh, church. Instead, the assembly of pastors and theologians who who gathered shifted the focus to produce an entirely new confession of beliefs, which became known as the Westminster Confession because it was primarily written in the area of the Westminster uh, Cathedral in their offices. Speaking of R.C. Sproul, we're quoting a lot of Sproul <laughs> today, which is not a bad thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> He says that the Westminster Confession is the most precise and accurate summary of the content of biblical Christianity ever set forth in creedal form. No historical confession surpasses in eloquence, grandeur, and theological accuracy more than the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession takes all 66 books of the Bible and their content and sifted it down into 33 chapters. The Westminster document is actually in three parts. There's the Confession, the Westminster Confession. There's the Westminster Longer Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The Westminster Confession is probably the most well-known and widely referenced work of the Reformation for Christians. While uh, the Confession is a series of 33 doctrinal statements, the Catechisms are a series of theological questions and their answers. The Westminster covers all areas of faith, from things like the person of Christ, justification, sanctification, assurance, worship, marriage, the church, baptism, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and so on. In the original form of the confession, the writers included scripture references to each one of the points that they made on every doctrinal point they discussed. So I would I can't imagine how long that is, but it's but they were meticulous to make sure that everything that they wrote was based in scripture. The first article, the Westminster Confession, regards the Word of God, and this was intentional and points to the conviction of the Reformers that the Word of God is the only source of truth. However, we are probably most familiar with question one of the Shorter Catechism, which is, what is the chief, chief end, end of, of man? man? And the chief end of man is to glorify God, God and enjoy, enjoy him, him forever. forever. And you could just sit and think about that for a long time. What a, what a brilliant thing to say. An important thing that the Westminster Confession provides, as do the other creeds that we've referenced, is unity in the church. Where there's false teaching, the creeds and confessions together with the words of Scripture reveal error and point believers to the truth. 
through centuries of work by faithful men doing the kind of things that we've discussed here today, the Church of Jesus Christ can live out Paul's encouragement from Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you all were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And that's our snippet from church history. <laughs> yeah, that's that. There's a lot to think about, I think, and process through. I was thinking, you know, as we were talking, we've always said for our course that our main textbook is the Bible, right? And so I think we just want to reiterate that all of the church history and the councils and the confessions, it's like you said, that they gave examples of where they found these things in the Bible because they're not just making them up, right? They're they're getting that truth from God's word, um, and that's their foundation as well. So it's helpful to us. Yeah. Any other? Nope. I think that is a good <laughs> good point to reiterate and well said. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Well, we will... Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot. Yeah, we're going to talk about book recommendations, right? Yes. Really to yes. end. From our church history nerd, as I <laughs> yes. affectionately hey, call I her. Hey, I brought two. I brought two. Yeah. Well. I'll share well, mine, tell, too. Share the ones that you, you have. Those mine. are good. Okay. Well, the first one, I I really thought that Marty recommended this, but my dad gave it to me to borrow. It's uh, called Turning Points by Mark Knoll. And it's the subtitle is Decisive Moments in the History of Christianity. So it goes into detail on, you know, the things that we've talked about today. And then the other one, which is bigger, it's it's kind of a doorstop again, but it's actually a little bit of an easier read. It's called Church History in Plain Language by Bruce L. Shelley. And so I only read this part of the book that's on the Council of Chalcedon, but I'm that's I'm adding it to my summer reading list because <laughs> I would like to know more about church history. So yeah, those are the two I brought. What did you bring, Marty? Well, I brought four different books, but let me just say that Westminster Bookstore, which you, one can access online, has a very rich um, collection of church history books that you can order. Uh, so there's one that I'm holding in my hand. Uh, that is called Church History 101, The Highlights of 20 Centuries by Sinclair F Ferguson, Joel Beakey, and Michael Hagen. And it is a very short read. It's only like 100 pages, but it's small a very small pages book. Too. Small pages, yeah, too. Very small pages. And just has really a neat overview of church history. Um, Stephen Nichols has written Five Minutes in Church History, which I think you mentioned you thought that this was from a, a podcast. I think that it he started as a podcast and then they did the transcript into a book, and then it's also available as an audiobook. So you could get that in a lot of different yes, <laughs> formats. Yeah. So it's it has a lot of interesting um narratives about church history, and so it's fun to read. Uh, one of the pastors here recommended a book to me called Theologians You Should Know, an introduction from the Apostolic Fathers to uh, the 21st century. And he talks about um, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Karl Barth. Who is that one by? And, and others. This is by Michael Reeves. Michael Reeves. Michael yeah. Reeves is great. And so I've very much enjoyed reading this. And then my doorstop... <laughs> is a collection that I think uh, I, I buy by John Piper. 
It's a collection of very sh relatively short biographies of church leaders, people, people like Augustine, Luther, John Newton, Athanasius, John Owen, William Tyndale, uh, C.S. Lewis, George Whitfield, and, and others. And um, it, it, it was originally a um, series of books that he entitled The Swans Are Not Silent. And I'm not going to try to figure out why John Piper called it that, but um, it is about the the heart of these men for God and it is just inspiring to read and very encouraging. So I, I recommend that. And I recommend that anyone become a church history nerd. <laughs> I'm inspired. I am inspired <laughs> as well. I got some reading to do. I know, I know. I was I was glad at first when you said we should do this as an episode. I'm like, but we didn't do it as a class. But I think it's been helpful. So thank you for for suggesting that. Yeah, so now you have some book recommendations to try, and uh, so we are going to close our time with another just rapid response question. I know you guys love these. So would you rather, I think I know what you're going to say, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Would you rather read a biography or watch a documentary? I would rather read a biography. I would rather watch a documentary. Really? Yep, I knew you. When you said you knew what I was going to say, I thought, <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> That's funny. But I didn't just say that because of that. <laughs> and I'd rather watch a documentary, too. Wow. And I thought... I am shocked. Yes, I thought I was going to shock you, too. So... Yeah, mm -hmm. I think I would, too. I think it's more my stage of life, kind of, that I'm in. But I, I enjoy documentaries as well. So there you have it. You we you guys are fooling me, but that's okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode. The next episode that we will be talking about is bibliology, the study of the Bible. So thanks for joining us. The Theology Matters course and podcast are projects of the women's ministry at Emmanuel Bible Church in Springfield, Virginia. Please subscribe to Theology Matters wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, please visit ibc.church and find the women's ministry page. We pray you will continue to study and understand the truth of God's Word every day and see just how much theology matters in every aspect of our lives.